Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report. I'm Diane Rebecca here on WNCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media Incorporated. All right, here we are, another week, and uh, I can't figure this weather out. We had snow in the morning today on this Sunday. This is the... February 2nd edition of the Consumer Review Report. And if you have any ideas of any products or services that you would like to hear on this show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Now, I'm not sure what uh, Punxsutawney Phil what his forecast was. I'm not sure if he was working. Um, It is not a government day of work, right? It's Sunday, so I didn't catch up on what Punxsutawney Phil said today. I hope it was good news, though, but again, I can't make heads or tails out of this weather. Um, We're supposed to be in the 50s this week, Uh, so it's February, and uh, you know, if the winters stay like this, we might not have to move south, so who knows? All right, again, also, you know, if uh, you have any product or service that you would like to absolutely rave about, or maybe a product or service did not treat you as well as expected, you can also email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also at Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. All right, so this week on the show, I'll be talking about the demise of local and supermarket pharmacies and why this is happening. Uh, Later, I'll be talking tech or technology news, things like hospitals giving tech giants medical records, and Google and third-party cookies and how that affects marketers and ad agencies because Google is planning on phasing out third-party cookies and marketers and ad agencies aren't real happy about that. Also, I'll be talking about Tinder dates. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, they have now added safety check-ins and panic buttons to their dating app. So if you happen to be out on a date that you met through Tinder dates and it doesn't seem to be going as well as expected. I'm not talking about because he's obnoxious or she's, you know, not for you. It's that if something, if you happen to be in danger, they have a button that you can press and uh, authorities will be on their way to save you. So it's, it's a tough dating world out there, I guess. But we'll be talking more about that later. Now, uh, of course, at the beginning of the show, as always, here comes the weekly recalls. So let's go ahead and get to those recalls. All right. First, we start out with the consumer product recalls. We have um, 12 of those this week. So let's get on. The foot support on the stool of a Veridesk... Oh boy, I have to see how my glasses are. I can't see here. Okay. The f- <laughs> Veridesk recalls stand to learn stools due to fall hazard. 
The foot support on the stool was improperly welded and can break, posing a fall hazard to consumers. And if you are concerned, if you have any of these products that we mentioned here on the show, you can go to www.recalls.gov, click on the link, it'll show you a picture of the product, and it'll tell you what to do, how to send it in for a refund, or, you know, um, are you able to use it uh, after you get something fixed, you know, it'll tell you all that at www.recalls.gov. I also have these links on my Facebook uh, page at Consumer Review Report. You just click on the link and it'll tell you everything you need to know if you are concerned you have any of the products that we mentioned here on the show. Uh, next up, Steel recalls pressure washers due to injury hazard. The pressure washer nozzle can disconnect from the spray wand when under pressure during use posing an injury hazard. PCNA recalls power banks due to fire and burn hazards. The power bank's lithium-ion battery can overheat and ignite, posing fire and burn hazards. Uh, let's see, this one's in Spanish, so we won't read that one. Evenflow recalls PO portable napper inclined sleepers to prevent risk of suffocation. So that's what we've been seeing. There was four baby items on this list this week. Uh, Evenflow recalls PO portable napper inclined sleepers to prevent risk of suffocation. Infant fatalities have been reported with other manufacturers' inclined sleep products after the infants rolled from their back to their stomach or side or under cir other circumstances. So they, they say, please discontinue use. Uh, here's another baby item. Graco recalls little lounger rocking seats to prevent risk of suffocation. Infant fatalities have been reported with the other manufacturers' inclined sleep products. And again, after infants rolled from their back to their stomach or side or under other circumstances. So they ask to just please stop using. Summer Infant recalls Swallow Me by Your Bed inclined sleepers to prevent risk of suffocation. And the same reason for the other two, uh, infant fatalities have been reported with other manufacturers' inclined sleep products. After the infants rolled from their back to their stomach or side or under other circumstances. Alright, Pier 1 recalls desk chairs due to fall and injury hazards. The chair's legs can break, posing fall and injury hazards. Polaris recalls Brutus utility vehicles due to collision and crash hazard. The rear brake line can become punctured, causing the brakes to fail, posing a collision and crash hazard. K-Apparel recalls children's lounge pants due to violation of federal flammability standard. It's a burn hazard. The children's lounge pants fail to meet the flammability standard for children's sleepwear that requires sleepwear to either be snug-fitting or flame-resistant, posing a risk of burn injuries to children. So if you're concerned you have those products, you can go to www.recalls.gov under Consumer Products and click on the links and it will show you pictures of these products. Bobcat Company recalls utility vehicles due to collision and crash hazard 
<coughs> the rear brake line can become punctured, causing the brakes to fail, posing a collision and crash hazard. And Polaris recalls Pro XD utility vehicles due to collision and crash hazards. The rear brake line can become punctured, causing the rear brakes to fail, posing a collision and crash hazard to the riders. So if you have any of these three UTV um, vehicles, again, you can go to www.recalls.gov, click on the link, it'll show you a picture, and it'll tell you what to do to get it fixed, or, I don't know, do you have to turn it in for a refund? Just click on the link, it'll tell you all of that. All right, let's move on to the FDA Recalls and Safety Alerts, ABH Nature's Products, Inc. Uh, they are issuing a nationwide recall of all lots of dietary supplement products. This recall applies to all dietary supplement products manufactured and sold between January 2013 and November 2019. And all lots of products are included in this recall. These products are being recalled after an FDA inspection found significant violations of current good manufacturing practice regulations. Savannah Food Company Inc. Uh, voluntarily recalls cornbread dressing and bread stuffing products due to possible health risk. Products that contain frozen diced eggs from Allmark Foods have the potential to be contaminated with listeria. Lapari Foods issues voluntary recall expansion on additional sandwiches due to potential contamination of listeria. This has been going on for quite a few weeks now. Um, they are expanding their January 6, 2020 recalls of Primo and Fresh Grab sandwiches to include all sandwiches with a best buy date of 2-6-20 and prior due to potential contamination of listeria. Uh, Queso's La Recura LTD recalls Kojiha cheese. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And it's because of possible health risk. Uh, packages of Kojiha cheese. Queso Kojiha. Because it may be contaminated with some kind of toxin that produces E. coli bacteria. Yikes. Alright, uh, moving on to Salude Natural Entrepreneur Inc. recalls Napolina Flaxseed Fiber Powder and Napolina Flaxseed Fiber Capsules because of possible health risk. Uh, the, pro the possible health risk being salmonella contamination. So again, that's Napolina Flaxseed Fiber Powder and Napolina flaxseed fiber capsules. Beepa's issues allergy alert in undeclared milk in product. Beepa's um, is recalling goulash because it may contain undeclared milk. Bacavore Food USA issues allergy alert on undeclared milk in mushroom barley soup. And they are recalling 840 units of Harris Teeter's Fresh Food Market Mushroom Barley Soup, 16 ounce with sell-by date codes, 3920, that's March 9th, 20, because it may contain undeclared milk. And that is it 
for our FDA recall safety alerts. Moving on to the FSIS recalls, that's Food Safety Inspection Service. They're recalling, uh, here's the recalls. There's only three, Amity Packing Company, Inc. recalls raw ground beef products due to possible foreign matter contamination. And Golden Pearl Trading Corporation recalls ready-to-eat imported Siloriforms products produced without benefit of import inspection. Now, Siloriforms products are like catfish. Uh, that sort of type of fish is like um, Siloriforms. That's the only thing I could think of under that is catfish. That's it. All right, and AstroChef LLC recalls pepperoni stuffed pizza sandwich products due to misbranding and undeclared allergens. All right, so that'll do it for our uh, recall for this week. Let's see if I can, yeah, stop it there. All right, uh, that's it for our recalls. And uh, I don't know if that stopped or not on my sound pad. Let me see. Nope. So it's, uh, it just keeps on going. Okay, there it is. <laughs> Won't stop. <laughs> Sometimes this sound pad thing I have works really great or not so much. So we just kind of have to muddle through this show as best we can using this. But it's the best I have for now. All right. So. All done with the recalls. Now let's get on with uh, general consumer news, especially local news. And it's regarding pharmacies and how they're being beaten back by like CVS and Walgreens and also online shopping and people that get their drugs through the mail. You know, the supermarket um, pharmacies are, are slowly going away. And also local mom-and-pop pharmacies. And here's an example. I uh, found an article on uh, in the Tube City Almanac written by Cami DiBattista. And it's entitled, After Nearly a Century, White Oak Pharmacy Closes Doors. And so after 94 years of business in White Oak, Mann's Drugstore closed its doors last week much to the dismay of the man's family and their loyal, long-time customers. Man's home medical products will remain open and look forward to focusing on the home health care and mobility products portion of the business. The decision to close the pharmaceutical side of the business was a difficult one, owner Dave Mann said, but he could no longer compete with the rising costs of drugs and competition from larger chains. Four generations of the family have worked at Mann's Drugstore, which was opened in 1926 by Walter Mann's Sr. and his brother, who purchased an existing drugstore. In 1966, in response to Medicare, the Manns began to carry home medical products and equipment, such as wheelchairs, beds, oxygen, and medical supplies. Soon after, mobility products such as lift chairs, scooters, and mobility products became available. It really increased our business when we expanded to include the new products, said Manns, who is eager to focus on this aspect of the business now that the drugstore portion has closed. The same care and attention that Manns has already always provided will still apply. 
a product purchase from Mans includes installation and takeaway of the old product at no additional charge. <clears throat> we will continue to work closely with our customers and their physicians to match their needs to the most appropriate equipment and supplies and to teach safe and proper usage. We offer a personal service that you just don't get when you order products online, Mans said. We make it a personal experience and we help people to stay in their own homes. So Mans Home Medical will also carry some over-the-counter drugstore items such as gauze, tape, bismolene powder, gloves, and more. <clears throat> Existing prescriptions were transferred to a local Rite Aid, which also purchased merchandise and inventory, man said. So that is an example of a local, kind of a mom-and-pop um, pharmacy that has to close their doors, but fortunately they have another side of the business that will be helpful to the community. So <clears throat> it's not a total loss, but this is going on all over the country. I have another article from the Wall Street Journal by Sharon Turlep and Jaywon Kang. It's titled, The Pharmacist is Out, Supermarkets Close Pharmacy Counters. In some towns, it is getting harder to pick up your blood pressure pills with that gallon of milk and rotisserie chicken. Hundreds of regional grocery stores in cities from Minneapolis to Seattle are closing or selling pharmacy counters, <coughs> which have been struggling as consumers make fewer trips to fill prescriptions and big drugstore chains tighten their grip on the U.S. market. Grocery pharmacies are getting hit on several fronts, analysis say, and the companies also say that they are too small to rest competitive reimbursement rates on drugs, they aren't connected to big medical networks or insurers, and they generally lack walk-in clinics and other health services that draw many customers to CVS and Walgreens locations. Grocery pharmacies are the latest casualty of industry consolidation that has for years been forcing mom and pop drugstores to close. Even some big players have rethought the market. Supermarkets have viewed pharmacies as a tool to draw shoppers in. Fueled by easy profits and relatively low startup costs, legions of stores added pharmacy counters in the 1980s and 1990s. The number of grocery pharmacies declined for the first time in years in 2017, the latest year for which data is available. Consumers are increasingly getting 90-day supplies of their medicines or getting prescriptions delivered in the mail. Those trends are resulting in a decline in foot traffic to supermarket pharmacies, which were typically located at the back of the stores. Meantime, profits are ever harder to come by as the healthcare industry consolidates. The chains, which now either own or have partnerships with the biggest insurers and pharmacy benefit managers, are able to secure better deals on drug costs that largely shut out the industry's smaller players. Pharmacy benefit managers serve insurers and other clients by choosing which medicines to cover and pushing for lower prices from drug makers and sellers. <clears throat> CVS and Walgreens also are working to transform drugstores into healthcare hubs, offering services from blood testing to chronic disease management. 
The tougher conditions come as the entire drugstore industry copes with a shift to online shopping and shrinking profits in prescription medicines, which often disproportionately affect smaller players. All right, so there's a shift in that going on as far as consumers looking for their prescription drugs. So be aware of, you know, if you're up in the Giant Eagle or maybe even Walmart, I don't know, maybe Walmart, even as big as they are, maybe they would have to eventually close their pharmacy if it's not being profitable. So I'm just not sure about that. But if you see that happening, well, it's... uh, it's forecasted here and also with the mom and pop pharmacies too which is a shame because you get personal attention and you don't get that personal attention from the big CVS and Walgreens that you would from mom and pop pharmacies or even from your local supermarket uh, drugstore all right so that's it for our news on the drugstores let's move on to some tech news The first thing on that agenda is why big tech wants access to your medical records and hospitals give tech giants access to detailed medical records. You know, why is this happening and are we happy about it? So let's go on to this um, sound audio that I have. It's called why big tech wants access to your medical records. So let's go ahead and take a listen. Your medical records used to look like this. Now, 80% are digital, making your health information easier for people and businesses to access. Let's say this is your electronic health record. It contains information on your medical history, diagnoses, prescriptions, and lots more. You might not expect tech giants like Amazon and Apple to be getting involved with your electronic health records, but they are along with smaller tech companies like Zelf, and they're starting to use them to grow new businesses. Here's how three companies are using our health data right now, and how they can dive deeper into our medical data in the future. Let's start with Zelf. They're a Seattle-based startup that recently developed an application that's embedded in a patient's electronic health record. Here's how it works. Medical professionals at hospitals that use Zelf create lists of products they think could be useful for their patients. For example, they might come up with 30 different products or services that could be useful for any of their pregnant patients. These can include everything from services like instructional videos and newsletters to products like maternity belts, compression socks, and body pillows. Then, Zelf adds these lists into their system. If a doctor has a pregnant patient, they can pull up the recommended list of products and services for pregnant people while looking at that patient's medical record. The doctor then goes through that list and selects which products and services they actually want to recommend to their pregnant patient. From there, the doctor sends their patient a digital shopping list. If the patient clicks on a product, they're directed to one of Zelf's 30 vendor sites, which include Amazon, BabyScripts, and Lyft, and given the option to buy. Some privacy experts worry that certain Zelf vendors can see when a patient purchased a product through Zelf, and therefore through their electronic health record. In theory, it could boost adherence to physician recommendations, which is a huge challenge uh, in the U.S. healthcare system. On the other side, there are real worries about what type of information um, Amazon in particular is getting access to. So from what I understand is that 
when a patient clicks on that Zelf app and is taken to Amazon, the data is quoted as Zelf data, which means that Amazon likely knows that you purchased those products through your electronic health record. Next up is Amazon. In addition to the tech giant's connection to Zelf, it started selling its own software that uses artificial intelligence to mine patients' electronic health records. It's called Amazon Comprehend Medical, and it's part of the company's cloud computing service. The software is sold to hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, researchers, and other healthcare providers. This helps doctors and researchers identify trends that humans may not notice. Here's how it works. Hospitals and other users upload portions of their patients' medical data to Amazon Web Services. The software then analyzes the data and is then presented to doctors in the form of something similar to an Excel spreadsheet. By using keywords, doctors can sift through tons of patients' data to find strong candidates for research studies. If they're looking for people with melanoma who also have a family history of cancer, they can do this in seconds, where it used to take hours. While studies acknowledge the potential benefits of electronic health records in that they could help researchers find cures for diseases, they also stress the potential for inaccuracies, noting coding problems or doctors entering wrong information. I think it's also very important to be transparent around the limitations of big data and machine learning and natural language processing and other types of AI that we're using to analyze uh, the data. And so right now, there are serious concerns about the quality of data. So for example, my OBGYN electronic health record said I was male and I was pregnant at the time. Finally, Apple is using the iPhone's health app to make medical records easier to access. The health records feature is located in the app, and it imports your medical information directly from your healthcare provider. This includes everything from information on allergies, immunizations, lab results, medications, and even vitals. There are already more than 150 participating healthcare institutions. The idea is to give an American iPhone user the ability to pull up their medical record on their phone and present it to a doctor anywhere in the world. The move by Apple is just one example of how it's recently made inroads into healthcare. In 2016, the company added a feature to the Health app that allows users to sign up to be an organ donor. And earlier this year, Apple Watch added a new electrical heart sensor feature, which has been cleared by the FDA. So as companies continue to use our electronic health records, what does this mean for our privacy? Amazon and Apple say they can't use or view the information. They also say it's encrypted, which helps prevent our health records from getting hacked. In addition, HIPAA has security rules that protect individuals' electronic health information, making our medical records some of the most difficult personal data to access. In spite of this, Dr. Dudley Adams, a data use expert, doesn't think this is enough. But no encryption is perfect. All it takes is time to eventually get through the encryption. The thing people are most worried about, about having their health records um, uh, hacked, is that um, then people will sell that information to insurance companies or employers so that they can avoid sick people and that hacking can mean that suddenly your private information makes you unemployable or uninsurable. Privacy experts also stress the need for openness as companies move deeper into our electronic health records. So the more that the companies can be transparent about these things, the, the less of a black box and, and perhaps the more um, appropriate trust we can build in the system. So whether or not privacy concerns outweigh the potential research benefits, one thing's for sure. This is just the beginning of companies tapping into our health data. There's just going to be so much opportunity to make money because there's so much money. It's $3 trillion are spent on healthcare every year.
All right, so I hope that gave you a little bit of background on what's going on with, you know, medical records being shared with the uh, big, you know, tech companies. Um, and also, you know, what, what came to mind when he said that encryption can only work so much that people break that all the time and then they could have access to whatever, you know, medical records you have. I mean, it's just getting out of control, you know, with what's being shared with who. Now, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and by the way, that was posted on YouTube by the Wall Street Journal, what you just heard there. Um, they have an article in the uh, Wall Street Journal as well. It was entitled, Hospitals Give Tech Giants Access to Detailed Medical Records. And it's not only Google that can tap into patients' digital health records. Microsoft and IBM also have signed agreements with major hospital systems, giving them the ability to access patients' identifiable data. Now, that was written by Melanie Evans, and she goes on to say, hospitals have granted Microsoft Corporation, International Business Machines Corporation, and Amazon.com the ability to access identifiable patient information under deals to crunch millions of health records, the latest examples of hospitals' growing influence in the data economy. Uh, Rapid digitization of health records and privacy laws enabling companies to swap patient data have positioned hospitals as a primary arbiter of how such sensitive data is shared. Microsoft and Providence, a hospital system with data for about 20 million patient visits a year, are developing cancer algorithms by using doctors' notes in patient medical records. The notes have not been stripped of personally identifiable information, according to Providence, which is based in Renton, Washington. Microsoft executive Peter Lee in July described how his company would use Providence patient data without identifying information for algorithm development. In a December statement, he said patients' personal health data remains in Providence's control and declined to comment further. B.J. Moore, Providence's chief information officer, said executives involved in the agreement at first planned to use data without information identifying patients. Later, they found they couldn't remove it all from doctor's notes. The Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle granted certain Amazon Web Services employees access to health information that identifies individual patients, a Fred Hutchinson spokesman said. The research institution, which has ties to hospitals, trained and tested Amazon Web Services software designed to read medical notes. An AWS spokeswoman said it doesn't use personally identifiable data protected under federal privacy laws to develop or improve its services. Digitizing patients' medical histories, laboratory results, and diagnosis has created a booming market in which tech giants are looking to store and crunch data with potential for groundbreaking discoveries and lucrative products. There is no indication of wrongdoing in the deals. Officials at the companies and hospitals say they have safeguards to protect patients. 
Now, hospitals control data with privacy training and close tracking of tech employees with access, they said. Health data can't be combined independently with other data by tech companies. But recent revelations that Alphabet Inc.'s Google is able to tap personally identifiable medical data about patients, reported by the Wall Street Journal, has raised concerns among lawmakers, patients, and doctors about privacy. The journal has also recently reported that Google has access to more records than first disclosed in a deal with the Mayo Clinic. Mayo officials say the deal allows the Rochester, Minnesota hospital system to share personal information, though it has no current plans to do so. Dr. David Feinberg, head of Google Health, said Google is one of many companies with hospital agreements that allow the sharing of personally identifiable medical data to test products used in treatment and operations. Now, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, lets hospitals confidentially send data to business partners related to health insurance, medical devices, and other services. The law requires hospitals to notify patients about health data uses, but they don't have to ask for permission. Data that can identify patients, including name and social security number, can't be shared unless such records are needed for treatment, payment, or hospital operations. Deals with tech companies to develop apps and algorithms can fall under these broad umbrellas. Hospitals aren't required to notify patients of specific deals. Under HIPAA, hospitals must divulge as little as possible about patients under agreements. But in some cases, the minimum amount needed by tech companies can be everything in patients' records. Hospital executives are drafting policies, such as how to tell patients about data sharing. So here's a new thing, too. You just think that you just have a relationship with your doctor, but apparently now there's a medical relationship with everybody and their grandmother, depending on you know, who they can, I mean, there's not even strict guidelines as how they share the information, you know, as far as like the social security and everything. They say they can share that in certain circumstances. And if you want to bend that, then you could share it with anybody if you wanted to bend the criteria for that, right? So I don't know, but I guess they want to try to develop new products and try to, you know, progress in the medical field and helping people and whatnot. So I don't know. I guess there's another trade trade off. But privacy seems to be getting more and more not existent anymore, you know. So that's my view on that, I guess. <laughs> so that'll that gives you a little bit of background on what's going on and why hospitals are sharing medical records with the uh, tech giants so let's move on to now about cookies and um you know we we hear a lot about uh google is going to kill cookies in their chrome browser um but marketers and ad agencies aren't real thrilled about that but we as consumers might be because then they won't be pestering us with ads when we buy something. You know, I've said this on the show before where 
I will buy something and then I will see ads peppered throughout my browsing uh, with the same exact product that I bought. And it didn't make sense to me because I've already bought the product. Why are you showing me more of the product? And those are because of the cookies and they know what I look for. And even if I just look at an item on Amazon, let's just say, but I don't buy it, I find that I there's ads that pop up. Hey, you better buy this, right? Even though I decided not to. So, so uh, essentially, Google is going to get rid of those third-party cookies. And so... Let's go ahead and turn to our audio and uh, maybe they could describe better why Google is going to do that. So let's uh, take a listen to that. Reported today in The Verge. Google to phase out third-party cookies in Chrome, but not for two years. Google will join Safari and Firefox in blocking third-party cookies in its Chrome web browser. However, unlike those browsers, which have already started blocking them by default, Google intends to take a phased approach. Justin Chu, the director at Engineering for Chrome, writes that Google's intention is to do this within two years. In those cookies place, Google is hoping that it can institute a new set of technical solutions for various things that cookies are currently used for. To that end, it has proposed a bunch of new technologies, as have other browser makers, that may be less invasive and annoying than tracking cookies have become. These new technologies are supposed to make it easier for advertisers to target certain demographics without laser sighting down to specific people, ensure that the infrastructure many sites use for logins don't break, and help provide some level of anonymous tracking so advertisers can know if their ads actually converted into sales. If it all came to pass, it would radically shift the way ad tracking and privacy work on the web. It could also open up entirely new vectors of tracking we have yet to imagine. The context for Google's cookie-killing proposal is that there's a pitched battle being waged between browser makers to remake the future of privacy on the web. On the one hand are browsers like Safari and Firefox, browsers with code that increasingly take an absolutist stance against cross-site tracking. On the other is Google and Chrome, whose developers are trying to cut down on tracking without kneecapping revenue for websites. The difference between them all isn't just whether and how to implement that tech, but when. Google wants to wait a bit. Apple and Firefox believe the crisis is already too big and have already started blocking third-party cookies, perhaps before there's a viable replacement for some use cases, and in some cases, they may not want there to be one. The battle is big and the rhetoric is getting sharp. People accuse Apple of wanting to smother the web in favor of a walled garden app store. Others accuse Google of wanting to maintain an ad-tracking dystopia. Google worries that cutting off cookies now will encourage bad actors to switch to harder to stop fingerprinting methods, but then everybody notices that it's awfully convenient that Google doesn't want to stop ad tracking until later. But because these are web people, the fights are happening in places you're probably not really watching, email lists, GitHub, and W3C panels and working groups. Compared to other tech fights, it probably looks relatively tame and, like all standards bodies, moves quite slowly. But the stakes are sky high, a huge proportion of the ads you see on the web are driven by third-party coup. For more on this story, visit the news article link. 
Okay, so I'm not sure if that's supposed to be Sari or Alexa giving us the news. It's kind of a, it's kind of a strange voice, I thought. But hopefully, hopefully you could understand what was going on. Um, but if you don't know what cookies are, let's go ahead to audio. Uh, uh, actually, that last audio you heard was posted on YouTube by Boy Digital Global Tech News. And this audio we're about to hear, uh, what are cookies and how they work in case, you know, some of us aren't up to speed on that. We'll go ahead and play that audio. It's a video posted on YouTube by Create a Pro website. So let's go ahead and see what are cookies. So chances are you've been browsing the internet and you've seen a notification like this pop up on your screen telling you that this website uses cookies. Most of the time, you just slap that agree button and go about your merry way. But you're likely here because you want to know what exactly are cookies and how do they work? Well, it's not that sweet artery clogging goodness that grandma whips up in the kitchen. We're talking about website cookies, which are more formally called HTTP cookies. So a cookie is a small piece of data from a specific website that is stored on a user's computer while they're browsing the web. And they can have many functions, such as keeping track of a user's browsing activity in order to serve up targeted information, such as ads for goods or services. This is why when you're browsing Amazon for a Halloween costume for your dog, you might see ads for more dog costumes on Facebook later that day. Cookies can also have simple functions, like remembering your login details for a specific website, such as Facebook so that you can close out of it and then reopen it again later without having to log back in again. Cookies can also allow website owners to track exactly how many unique visitors they're getting to their website, because each cookie has its own unique ID. So if a user visits the same website two or three times in a day, a cookie can allow us to count this as one unique viewer. So website owners can collect more accurate data about their website traffic. So where did the cookie come from and how did it get its name? Well, the first cookie was invented in 1994 by a 24 year old programmer for Netscape Communications named Lou Montulli. He was creating an online store for a company that said that their servers were getting too full from storing each individual user's shopping cart data while they were browsing the store. So Lou was asked to figure out a way to store each user's shopping cart data on their own computer which would then save server space for the company and save them money. So he thought back to an old computing token called the magic cookie, which was used to identify when somebody would log into a system by passing a tiny bit of information between the server and their computer. Lou then recreated this concept for web browsing and thus the modern day cookie was born. Cookies today are still used to identify your computer, but now they have the added function of also tracking your activity which can be very helpful or a breach in privacy depending on how the website decides to use this information. Which is why you get that little notification whenever you visit a website that uses cookies because they're legally obligated to inform you in their cookie policy of what they use these cookies for. And now for the age old question, how does a cookie work? Well, when you visit a website for the first time, let's just say for this example, it's an online store. The website puts a cookie on your hard drive that has its own unique identification code. The site then uses this ID to keep track of your session. 
the session being your overall visit on their website from start to finish. The reason it does this is to keep track of things like which items you put in your shopping cart, or which items you looked at so it can suggest similar items, or even save coupon codes for you that can be used later even if you close out of the website and come back to it. And they have many more functions than this, but this is just some of the most common ways. Now, a cookie is only specific to that website, meaning that they can't track you on a totally different website. Or can they? Well, there's another type of cookie called a third-party cookie, which I will explain with an example. Let's say that you're browsing around a website that has a button to like or share on Facebook embedded into it. Well, this button has to talk to Facebook.com, which means that Facebook can now send their own cookies through this website in order to track your activity, and then most likely serve up some targeted ads for you on your Facebook newsfeed later. It's stuff like this that push Europe to institute the GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, which allows users to opt out of the use of cookies if they so choose. But not all cookies are privacy-breaching parasites, and they will generally help you have a much more enjoyable user experience on the web and save you lots of time and headache. Alright guys, so that was a breakdown of what are cookies and how do they work. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that like button, or if you want to get more website related questions answered, or learned how to create professional and beautiful websites from home, then consider subscribing to my channel. You won't be sorry. Okay, so that was posted by Create a Pro website, and hopefully it gives you a better understanding on cookies and how they work. Now, in this uh, Wall Street Journal article written by Nat Ives, it's entitled, Marketers and Ad Agencies Ask Google Not to Kill Cookies. Google said it intends to phase out support for third-party cookies in Chrome within the next two years. Marketers and advertising agencies expressed alarm over Google's plan to phase out support of third-party cookies in its Chrome internet browser. Google's decision could hurt digital businesses, consumers, and innovation. The Association of National Advertisers and the 4As, a trade group for ad agencies, said in a statement, it would threaten to substantially disrupt much of the infrastructure of today's internet without providing any viable alternative, and it may choke off the economic oxygen from advertising that startups and emerging companies need to survive, they said. Now, I don't know if they're being a little bit dramatic or if this is true or not. Um, the groups urged Google not to make any changes until alternatives are in place. Cookies are a way to gather information on internet activity. Websites use first-party party cookies to collect data on their own visitors. Third-party cookies, in, contra in contrast, track consumers' activity across the internet. They generate information that is useful for ad targeting and other purposes, but have raised privacy concerns over the years. In response to the trade group's objections, a Google spokeswoman emphasized a section of the blog post that said the company's plan will take effect after the industry develops new ways to meet advertisers' needs. Apple Inc.'s Safari and Mozilla's Corp. Firefox already have rolled out restrictions on tracking cookies, but Chrome dominates the global desktop browser market.
ending third-party cookies could uh, counterintuitively improve the effectiveness of digital advertising because it will push companies to establish direct consensual relationships with consumers which is what you what used to happen, right? You went into a brick and mortar store and you had salespeople there that, you know, would, you know, help you and find what you needed. And so instead of just blanketing the internet and that person with just arbitrary ads that, you know, if you decided not to buy a product, they're going to try to push it down your throat. Uh, it will it, it might say that they will have to work harder for your business and I guess they don't want to do that and that's what they're worried about to, that's what it sounds like to me anyways so I have a, another uh, actually let's go ahead and go to uh, the tinder what I promised uh, at the beginning of the show that uh, I guess tinder is adding a panic button that can track locations and alert authorities when you're in danger from your date. So let's go ahead and um, go to that news report from Yahoo Finance. So let's take a listen. Okay, so I'm not hearing anything, so I don't know if I have anything there. I mean, it says it's there, but it's not there. <laughs> so anyways, it was just a news report uh, describing it, but there was also an article in the Wall Street Journal by Georgia Wells. It says, coming soon to Tinder dates, panic buttons, and safety check-ins. So let's see why it wasn't working. I don't know. Sometimes, like I said... The sound pad could be my best friend or my worst enemy. So let's go ahead and go through this article. Tinder wants to allow users to send out an alarm when bad dates turn really ugly. The popular dating app plans to start offering users an option to hit a panic button, receive check-ins to make sure they feel safe, and even summon authorities to their location. To offer the service, Tinder parent company Match Group Inc. is taking a stake and a board seat in an app called Noonlight that tracks the location of users and notifies authorities in the event of safety concerns. Tinder plans to debut the feature free for U.S. users at the end of January, and Match Group uh, plans to roll out to its other dating apps in coming months. And at the end of January, I I guess they're talking about 2020, which is just a few days ago. So it might already be there. I don't know. I'm not a Tinder user. So if you are, check it out. See if it's there. The company has been criticized at times for not doing more to screen out bad actors, often in the wake of reports of sexual assaults and other crimes that result from connections made through the apps. Tinder's move shows how some online platforms are investing more in the physical safety of users, while also highlighting the privacy trade-offs that often entails. 
Uber Technologies Inc., Airbnb Inc., and Care.com Inc. are among the online platforms that have struggled with safety issues and in recent months announced extra measures to address them. The investment in Noonlight marks the first step Tinder is taking to monitor the real-time safety of its users after they connect on the platform and meet for coffee or drinks. Previously, Tinder's safety efforts focused on monitoring how users communicated with one another, employing moderators and machine learning to detect abusive language and photos. When Tinder launches the Noonlight tool, users will be able to add a badge to their dating profiles. Now, when they add that badge, is sort of like a, when people put that security company sign in the front yard basically trying to deter anybody saying that, hey, I am under this plan, you know, you're going to have to work a little harder if you want to, uh, you know, uh, commit your crime, whatever it might be. So that's why they have the users add the badge to their dating profiles. Now, ahead of dates, users will be able to log information such as the time and details about the other person. Then, if they trigger an alert, Noonlight can share the information along with the user's real-time location with authorities. That process involves users giving Noonlight permission to track their locations throughout a date. Another potential snag false positives, such as if users accidentally trigger false alarms that summon police during a date that is actually going well. When an alarm is triggered, Noonlight instructs users to enter a code. If they don't enter it, they'll immediately receive a text from one of Noonlight's dispatchers. If they don't respond to the text, Noonlight attempts to call them. If there is no answer, or if it is answered confirming they need help, then Noonlight dispatches emergency services. Tinder next plans to roll out a verification system that is currently testing, which would require users to prove they actually look like the photos they submit. The tool asks users to take pictures in certain poses, such as with their thumbs up, and compares the photos to the images in their profiles. Tinder gives blue verification badges to users if the photos match. So it's very complicated, this online uh, dating, I guess. So you have to think of everything. And uh, of course, people would put on pictures that they look 20 years younger on. I mean, I would do that, I guess. (laughs) Unless you're looking, you know, for, I don't know, some honest relationship. I don't know. So anyways, uh, we are at the end of our show and um hope you learned a little bit about the tech news going on out there if you have any ideas of any products or services that you would like to hear on the show you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com i'm also on facebook at consumerreviewreport and on twitter at crr in mckeesport Also, if there's a product or service you would like to rave about or you would have to have a thumbs down on and you'd like to describe that experience to us, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at consumerreviewreport and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So, 
With that being said, this is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM, Internet Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media Incorporated, heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. I'm Diane Rebecca, wishing everyone a safe and good week. <laughs>